pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this morning we have a, uh, the, the treat of having a special guest preacher with us this morning, the Reverend Dr. David Casson, uh, who was the senior pastor up in Mill Creek at North Creek Presbyterian Church. I worked with him uh, for just, a, just a, a brief time, just before I moved to Connecticut, and I'm delighted to have David uh, with us this morning to bring God's Word, particularly, uh, not only because uh, I think David has uh, some excellent things to say as a PhD in Old Testament, but also some excellent things to say as a good pastor, um, but also as we come to this last weekend. Isaiah. I think it's a, a grand time for us to, to really uh, to hear God's word once more here and, and looking forward to what David is going to share with us this morning. Good morning, saints of John Knox Church. What a privilege it is to get to bring God's word to you from Isaiah on this fifth Sunday of Lent. My name is David Casson. I'm a pastor Presbyterian pastor up on the north side of town, actually coming to you from my home in Linwood this morning. And part of the reason I've ended up preaching this morning is that your new pastor, Pastor Jimmy, and I were on staff together at North Creek Presbyterian Church here in Mill Creek. He was our legendary youth director. He was just finishing up his preparation for ministry. And a little while after I came, he headed back east, got ordained, and pastored in Connecticut, and now he's back in the Northwest. And I'm so grateful for him to give me this opportunity to preach to you this morning. Speaking of youth ministry, there's actually a tie-in with this grievous wound that's on my nose right now. My wife and I were on staff of a church in Tennessee. We were co-youth directors. And as happens, we have kept up with all of our old youth group kids if they've grown up. One of them now lives in Astoria. She's 38 and has a one-year-old kid now that my wife and I have been vaccinated, she actually brought her kid up um, two, three days ago when we were building Tupperware towers and letting young Levi knock them down with all sorts of glee. And he grabbed a Tupperware and he whacked it on my nose and took off a few layers of skin. And I would do it again because we had so much fun knocking down Tupperware. Um, some of you may feel like I look familiar, and that could be because our church, North Creek Church and John Knox Church, were both part of the Cascade Fellows uh, faith and work program a few years ago, and uh, we are small groups often gathered together. And so I got to know many of you through that, and that was a really rich experience. Let's, let's go to God in prayer before we go to God's text. God, we want to attend to this text, this gift you've given us, these words that you proclaim to your people through your servant Isaiah, and uh, we want to listen for your word to us this morning. Help us to do that. Help them not just to be words, though, but transformative, that they might change the way we live in this week ahead, and, uh, and that we might please you and glorify you and cause you joy. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I will recount. I will recount. It's with those three words that the prophet Isaiah opens this poem that provides us with our text this morning. This is Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. And if you have been listening to the messages through this spring series on the prophet Isaiah, you're not going to be surprised that Isaiah, here at the end of his book, as he looks back, has plenty to recount, plenty to remember. But I am curious if, like me, Hearing these three words, I will recount at this moment, March 2021, 
I wonder if your mind might wander off to a different sort of recounting. Recounting, remembering the unprecedented, almost unimaginable things that we have all experienced globally since a year ago, since March 2020. Do you remember March 2020 in the before times, as people are calling it? And especially, do you remember March 11th? That seems to be the day that everybody is deciding the pandemic began. It was a day the stock market crashed and the NBA canceled its season and the um, WHO declared it a global pandemic. That was the day on which we all felt the ground just shift underneath our feet and we realized that we were in for the ride of our lives. You most likely caught some of that one-year recounting on the news last week or in the newspaper, on the radio, as we as a culture collectively marked a year unlike any that we have lived before. And, God be praised, the prospect that we are finally emerging on the other side of this thing. On that one-year anniversary, on March 11th, NPR ran a piece, and it was about ER doctor Angela Chen, who first was the first one to diagnose COVID in New York State. And uh, it was on that date, on March 11th, we feel a little smug in the Northwest because here in Seattle and Everett specifically, we were actually a few weeks ahead of that. But that was really when this got on the national um, radar, that this was a big deal. But as ended up happening with so many of our heroic healthcare workers, in order to protect her patients and protect her family, Dr. Chen made this gut-wrenching decision as the pandemic unfolded, she decided that she would voluntarily isolate herself from her one-year son. She actually got an apartment and had no direct contact as the pandemic unfolded. And the interviewer, Scott Detrow, was, was really uh, compassionate and empathetic and interested in this unimaginable sacrifice that this young mom had made. And he asked Dr. Chen how she and her husband can imagine that they will explain this experience, these months this year to their son, years from now. And it was interesting that in their case, as the weeks began to unfold, as the pandemic caught on, what they decided to do was to open a Gmail account with their son's name, and every day they would send a diary entry to his Gmail account that he's not gonna see for many, many years, but a way to record and tell him what they were experiencing at the time. I will recount. How do we recount all that we have been through as we begin to see the end of this pandemic up ahead? How do we express our heartfelt relief and our sense of celebration? Maybe a sense that this is too good to be true, that, it's, that before long we might see, say, go out and see a movie or go out to dinner. We might even attend one of those Fourth of July backyard picnics that President Biden described so beautifully in his speech last week. How do we tell the whole story? That soon, seeing it in the rearview mirror is going to be a really cool experience. That along the way, that in, mixed in with everything else, there were even some unexpected gifts. Maybe enhanced family time, maybe some cherished relationships that you attended to, a slower pace you got to live, more intentional living, maybe some new hobbies. And yet, and yet, all of that joy and relief rings a bit false 
if it doesn't also contain grief and loss. Because boy, has there been a cost. We all heard those statistics last week. The unemployment rates of this last year, failed businesses, restaurants that have closed. And all those statistics don't even begin to capture the personal cost of this pandemic. All of that human contact that we were deprived of for a year, all that family contact that we just didn't have, all of the canceled graduations and family reunions and weddings, even funerals, all of the kids' soccer games that didn't happen, the dance recitals, the worship services, and all of that lost learning of our generation of young people in spite of their teachers' incredible and heroic adaptations to distance learning on the fly. And of course, all of the isolation between generations within families, grandparents not holding their grandchildren, and especially grandparents isolated in care facilities or maybe in ICU, maybe even in their final moments. And, of course, that most staggering statistic of all, the death toll. All of those deaths. As we, over this last year, kept revising upward just how bad this seemed to be, week by week, would we ever have imagined we would arrive at a half million plus. And odds are that that staggering number contains within it names for you, of family members and of friends and acquaintances, as it does for me indeed. I will recount, says Isaiah. How would you recount your experience of this last year? How are you recounting it with your family or just on your own? I want to give you just a minute to think about that. Here, at the end of Isaiah, chapter 63, it's just three chapters from the end of his book, is a poem, as I suggested earlier, that is all about recounting. And on your first read through this passage today, yes, you will find plenty of joy and gratitude and relief as Isaiah looks back. This starts off like a hymn, doesn't it? I will recount the glorious deeds of the Lord. It's uplifting. It is full of praise, of relief, of thanksgiving. There is all of that. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But let's sit on this poem for just a bit. Read between the lines a little bit. It's hard to see at first, but this is a joyful text because it is also an honest text about real trauma. As you have been hearing throughout this series, there's a thoroughly traumatic historical background to the book of Isaiah, perhaps the most comprehensive disaster that God's people ever experienced. If we name March 11, 2020, People of Israel would name July 10, 586 B.C. as the date that the whole world shifted underneath them. The date that all that they took for granted dissolved. That was the day that the besieging armies of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon breached the walls of Jerusalem, unleashing an orgy of destruction. Everything that undergirded daily life in Judah, everything that undergirded faith in God, evaporated. The king, gone, David's own descendant. The temple, the place of God's presence, gone. 
Even the promised land itself was no longer theirs. All of it was torn out from under them. And most of the population marched in chains to exile in Babylon. So when Isaiah says, I will recount, this is the long, painful story that he's recounting. He's looking back through the decades on trauma and on loss, and yes, eventually restoration. And as he does so, he, as, he, as he tries to make sense of his own specific moment in time, he does something that God's people have always done. He tells a story. He tells the story of another moment of trauma and danger and fear. The story of that time that God led his people out of slavery in Egypt. The story of their terrifying flight and their upended lives and their suffering and the remarkable conclusion that God was with them then at every moment. What Isaiah is doing in this poem is to take that older story the story of the Exodus, and to superimpose it onto the story of his own moment in the Babylonian exile. Because that is what God's people always do. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord. And here is where things get really meta. Because this morning, as we look over Isaiah's shoulder, as we recount our experience of this pandemic of the last year with Isaiah's help, what we're really doing is to take his already superimposed story, his story on a story, and to further superimpose that onto ours, as we too recount the gracious deeds of the Lord. So, how does Isaiah help us do that? What can we learn about recounting by watching Isaiah recount his own people's experience surviving epic trauma. Well, first, to simply tell the truth, to not sugarcoat it. What we have been through together, Isaiah says, and um, mostly he puts it in the first person plural, the we, this is something we did together. What we've been through together was simply not a whole lot of fun. And if you have waded through 63 chapters of Isaiah so far with the rest of the congregation, you already know how brutally honest one of God's prophets tends to be. It has been violent, hasn't it? With battles and bloodshed and famine and pestilence. It's been full of accusations and judgment and anger and guilt. And there are some loaded words right here in today's passage. Distress is one Isaiah uses. And it has a sense of suffocation in the Hebrew, even claustrophobia. Also talks about going through the depths. He mentions the depths of their shared experience. Well, the word he uses is actually the name of the primordial god of chaos, Tiamat, in the Babylonian religion. It's like a, a demon, like a dementor, or kind of like a, a divine black hole demon. Um, in fact, if you pull the lens back a bit, you'll find that these eight verses that we're looking at this morning are actually part of a longer 24-verse lament. It's a poem of lament, actually stretches into the next chapter, into chapter 64. And it's a lament which, like many of the Book of Psalms laments, lays out before God just how difficult things are for us down here lately, God. Um, in the next chapter, in the same poem, Isaiah is even going to accuse God. You, God, have hidden your face from us. 
in this language of lament, biblical faith does something that our faith often does not. It names the pain out loud. It sets it before God in all of its unvarnished ugliness. Biblical faith knows intuitively that without true grief, without naming the grief out loud, there can't be true healing. So, as we recount this last year of COVID, we need to be just as honest because for so many, this has been an experience of real trauma. This last week, the American Psychological Association released a survey reporting that fully one-thirds of adults in this country currently are reporting some symptoms of anxiety or depression linked to this pandemic. 40% have gained weight during the pandemic. A quarter are drinking more than they were. Like Isaiah, until we name this grief out loud, genuine healing will elude us. But Isaiah, on Israel's behalf, doesn't just acknowledge trauma. He tells the story of how this trauma has battered and has buffeted his people's relationship with their creator. Where is God? That is the characteristic question in biblical lament. And sure enough, here in this lament, in Isaiah, verse 11, Isaiah puts on the lips of his people that same question. In all of this pain of the exile, where has the God of the Exodus been, he asks. Where is the one who brought his people through the Red Sea? But Isaiah even goes further in this whole disaster. It felt like God was our enemy. He turned on us in wrath and fury and in fact, from Isaiah's very first chapter, God doesn't deny it. In all of these 63 chapters, Isaiah has been trying the best that he can to explain how this happened. That the sheer hypocrisy of God's people, the way that they have been happy to call themselves by God's name while at the same time extorting and mistreating the poor and the vulnerable and the refugee, how they have pursued greed, how they have worshipped other gods on the side, how they have made a mockery of the covenant that they had made with God at Sinai. And when you look back and you think about this, it is remarkable that this culture, this exilic Judean culture in Babylon, apparently heard Isaiah's words and apparently valued them so dearly that they preserved these words after he died. They recorded them, they handed them on, and eventually they studied them through the centuries as scripture. It is an almost unprecedented act of cultural and national self-awareness, of repentance, of God's people saying, yep, we didn't think so at the time, but Isaiah had it right all along. We messed up. We let God down. We disobeyed. We went so far that we made God our enemy. And so maybe, as we recount the story of this pandemic, we might aspire to be just a bit of, to have just a bit of that sort of self-awareness, admitting that while yes, COVID sometimes brought out the best in us, it also brought out the worst, didn't it? It brought out behaviors that grieved God's spirit as we hoarded the teepee, as we withdrew from helping that neighbor, as we concluded that God had somehow abandoned us. As Isaiah looked back on decades of trauma there in Babylon, as he 
recounted the whole experience of exile in the rearview mirror, he made sense of it through that much older story of the Exodus. And while this allowed him to be honest about the sheer grief involved, while it allowed him to acknowledge how God felt absent at times, that Exodus lens also gave him one more crucial element of honest recounting. It gave him a point of access into God's own character and how that made all the difference. Because Isaiah understood that the Exodus had revealed once and for all who God really is. A God who rescues. A God who remembers his people, who shows up, who takes what looks like failure on the outside and transforms it into unexpected victory. It's that insight that allows Isaiah to look back through the trauma and to realize that, yes, in spite of everything, God did not abandon us. As he says in verse 9, it was just like it was in the Exodus. God wasn't just with us as an angel or as a messenger. It was his own presence. He was here with us in person through exile and beyond. Because God is who God is, God remembered his covenant promises. He remembered that he is our God, we are his people, and so on the far side of suffering, on the far side of confusion and alienation, God is even now picking up the pieces and beginning to put things back together. Using powerful, iconic words that are at the center of biblical faith, words that flow through the Old Testament and into the New, Isaiah tells us that God has become Israel's redeemer, redeemer, buying them out of bondage, that God has become her savior. That's a Hebrew word that in Hebrew is Yeshua, and that's going to become Jesus' own first name. In Exodus, and now through exile, that is who God is. That is what God does. Well, with those same eyes, we can look back through our traumatic year and see that in spite of how it sometimes felt, God was not, in fact, far off somewhere. God had not sent one of his underlings. God, instead, was with us in person walking every step of this experience right through the worst of it. God was present in every ICU, was present in every Zoom classroom, was present in every stressed out family, present in every closed business, present in every postponed dream. God has been and was with us in the pain and the confusion and the uncertainty in the worst of it and the best of it. And so, we too can look back and we can say with Isaiah, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord and the abundance of his steadfast love. And while not sugarcoating this experience that we've all been through this last year, we can, we can, because of who God is, begin to imagine ourselves into this lovely, final verse of our passage, one that echoes, in my mind, echoes the 23rd Psalm. At long last, as this vaccine spreads to more and more of the population, as we emerge from a really difficult year, we too are like those cattle 
going down to the valley where the tall grass is, where God, praise his name, is finally giving us his blessed rest. Because to be part of God's people is to find our story, our stories revealed in their fullness, revealed in a way they finally make sense in God's own story. And so we gather at this table to allow God to superimpose onto our lives the story of the biggest exodus of all, of God's ultimate Redeemer and Savior, where we, more than anywhere else, recount the gracious deeds of the Lord.